The Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners, a free-flowing conversation with leaders in the HR community, talking about themselves, the industry, and their work. Brought to you in cooperation with NERA, the Northeast Human Resources Association. Welcome to the Hennessy Report by Keystone Partners. I'm Dave Hennessy, and today's guest is Dr. Shanita Williams of Southern New Hampshire University. I had the honor of interviewing her in front of a live audience at Strategic HR, Mount Washington Hotel, late last year. She wowed the crowd. Beyond giving great information and sharing great stories about the work she's doing in employee experience and building culture and creating communities of practice and how to give meaningful feedback to employees and, and really engaging the team there. She also delivered it in a way that was so positive, just a completely glass full type of spirit. And she's just a breath of fresh air, which will come through as you listen to this podcast. And she's truly motivational. So enjoy this podcast. Next up in the podcast is Marcus Buckingham, who leads research at ADP's Research Institute. And of course, he's also a multiple best-selling author. And now our conversation with Dr. Shanita Williams. We like to find out a little bit about our guests and their earlier life experience and how that ties into what they've done today. So, Shanita, what's something, as you look back on it now, you see as an inflection point for what you have become as a professional as a person? When I actually ran track, so I was the local neighborhood Forrest Gump. Uh, everyone knew that you would find Shanita running. And I was actually pretty good at it. And I said, this is my unique ability. I'm just going to be a track star. But it wasn't until one day, my freshman year, I joined the high school track team. And while the coach spoke positively about my ability to run, he said, I think you could do something else. And imagine my little mind. And I was like, no, there's nothing else. I've been doing this since I was five. I am going to be just a runner. Well, he said, what about the long jump? And I thought, what is that? <laughs> and he said, I think you have potential to try this event. Just give it a shot. So it was the first time that I had to break away from a norm that I thought I was, this is all I could do. I was so fixed. And I actually took a leap of faith and I tried it. Guess what? <laughs> sorry, sorry. I get, get, get track. I'm getting around track. <laughs> but I took a leap of faith and I decided to trust him. There was something, the way he looked at me as a coach and was like, no, I really trust me, Shanita. I tried it. I liked it. I loved it. I was so good at it that it actually became the ticket to college. I became the first generation college student, not because I was really good at track. I was okay academically, but it actually was the long jump that actually brought recruiters to the high school and got me into college, a dream that I never thought I would be able to fulfill. And that has unlocked my potential. So it makes me think about all of the hidden potential that we all have, right? We're just one experience away from the precipice of something that could take you on a trajectory you never imagined. And that, for me, I take that into my leadership. So when I'm leading and I meet people, I'm always thinking, everyone's great. We all have potential. But how can I nudge people to get a little out of their comfort zone? What do I see that they can't yet see that I might be able to nudge them into uh, a future that unlocks them and being the first of something potentially in their family? So. Great story. 
Well, here we are in northern New Hampshire, but we want to talk a little bit about southern New Hampshire University, where you work, and maybe you could just do some level setting and get us get us up to speed. We all know about the university, but it's gone through a lot of growth and change, and, and maybe you can let us know about some of the metrics and how much influence you have in higher ed and adult learning across the country. Southern New Hampshire was found in 1932, originally New Hampshire, the School of Accounting and Secretarial Science. Back in 1932, they were in a two-room office building with just 10-day students and 35-night students. Today, on campus um, in Manchester, New Hampshire, we have 2,500 learners on campus. And when you combine that with our online division that started in 1995, we have 160,000 learners who are learning globally, which is pretty incredible. So I consider it an honor to be able to be a part of that. So we have students, of course, in Texas, Alaska, and even helping educate refugees in Rwanda. So the impact, as I think about the mission of the university, is quite immense, but we know that it cannot be done without talent. HR professionals, right? We know that it's powered by great people. We actually have 10,000 administrative staff and faculty who are supporting this rallying around the mission to create opportunities and curate experiences for 160,000 learners. We have our eyes on 300,000 learners in the near future. We actually have a space where you can have the traditional experience on campus, or if you are working professional, family, you can do online, veterans, and even refugees. So that's kind of a, a quick snapshot of our landscape today. In, in some of the news recently, I've read about the partnership with corporations where they want to provide uh, higher education and adult learning to their employees. Can you talk a little bit about um, how that's evolved? Yeah, absolutely. We know um, as HR professionals, workforce planning is something that's so important. And organizations are really thinking about, well, how do I skill our workforce? How do we reskill, upskill, especially given, right, COVID? We're all learning new skills during this time. And so the university has a department that really focuses on partnering with organizations to think about how can we help you invest in your precious talent. And oftentimes it's curating unique pathways specifically to those education employers to be able to do that. So for example, we just entered a partnership with Walmart to help their 1.4 million associates to think about career pathways in the near future. That's actually powered through a partner called Guild, who's actually helping to deliver on that. So creating partnerships within the community, because our mission really is to create access to higher education. And so we're hoping that through those partnerships, employers are able to retain their staff because when you invest in them and you pour into them, they're willing to give back double what you pour into them. Uh, what are some of the other values at SNHU? Our vision really is to make the world a better and more just place, one student at a time. That requires values. All of them are important, but I think about our first one is exude passion. Passion for education. How do you prevent burnout? Well, when people can align to the mission, when you feel like your role has an impact in the organization, you're more likely to stay. You're more likely to feel fulfilled. In addition, though, challenging the status quo. Can't keep doing the things we've always been doing. And so innovation is also a really key hallmark of the organization as we think about how do we identify where education is going and how do we start to meet those needs by thinking intently today about education of tomorrow. So challenging the status quo, doing the right thing, exhibiting grit, never giving up. Anybody feel like giving up over the past? <laughs> we have, right? But we use that to kind of help us get into these spaces where we can be optimistic.
We're going to have challenges, but exhibiting grit is the one that says, hey, don't give up. We know we're going to figure it out. It may be hard, but we're going to keep pushing. So those are some of the values that really can drive our daily behaviors. Well, a lot of us in HR and organizations, leading organizations are wrestling with how to attract talent in this really competitive market and maintain it. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing? Yeah. So I've been with SNHU a little over seven years and I hail from from California here because of SNHU. The strategic plan for the organization actually has a strategic commitment that says attract retain and develop world-class talent. So it is not just something we say, but it is a strategic imperative as an organization. So some of the things that we do, and I'm sure you're all familiar with employee value propositions, right? So making sure that we're really clear about what is the experience here at SNHU and how do we communicate that? When you talk to our employees, people usually say, oh, I love the people. I love the people. We're like, okay, how do we package that, right? Like, how do you tell people you love the people here in an employer value proposition? So we're really working hard and closely with the marketing team as an HR partner to really think about how do we communicate that in New Hampshire? But of course, now, how do we track talent everywhere? So having a physical presence in New Hampshire has been great. But we're actually expanding and have a location. I'm not sure if you all know, but actually the year of COVID, we opened the doors to our Tucson, Arizona administrative location with 150 staff members there. So we spent a lot of time talking to our employees and really trying to figure out how we can communicate that more broadly. But when it comes to retaining staff, everybody hear about the great resignation? Yeah, everyone's like, yes, please don't tell me. A big part of what we're doing, too, is trying to be very thoughtful about not just what's happening in our organization, but what's happening more broadly. We know that studies have shown Microsoft has said, you know, 41 percent of individuals today are thinking about potentially leaving their job. Well, we don't want to be a part of that. So really putting together programming around communities, really making sure that we have spaces for people to be able to employ their best selves making sure that we have either projects or uh, communities that they can join, but really making sure people have that role alignment fit. So we talk about perfect alignment. Is this the right place for you? And making sure that we are able to leverage their skills as they emerge over time, because where you start isn't necessarily where you finish. We actually are launching a talent mobility program. How many of you are recruiting internally? That is an untapped market for a lot of folks. And so we actually just put together a team of folks who are meeting with staff members, helping to look at their resumes, helping tool them for the next job within the organization so that they're not looking outside. Because we work in higher education and we provide an education benefit, people are with us and they earn their degree. Why not retain them? Excellent. You also write and speak a lot about engagement and empowering employees and individuals. And I was wondering if you could give some examples to us. Having control over your day. It shouldn't be that I have to ask permission for every single function in my role. So for an example, our student financial aid counselors, we said, hey, if they're talking to a student and they run into a situation, what if we allowed our finance advisors to say, hey, if it's up to $1,000, they can work with the student and write off the balance or they can make a decision on what the next best step is instead of saying, I have to ask for permission. So we're trying to think about what are the things that we can do to signal to the employee that we've hired you because you're amazing and you can make that decision. We're trying to move as an organization to what we're calling a learning organization where you don't have to feel the stress of, oh, what if I make a mistake? Social capital is something that a lot of people are worried about. Sometimes taking a risk feels uncomfortable. For me, when I was running track, you want me to try something new? I've been doing this for the last 15 years and you want me to try that and not really be good at it? 
taking a risk can feel really stressful. And so when we try to empower our staff, we're empowering you to also make a mistake because that is where the learning happens. We pulled together what we're calling a culture coalition of employees that are comprised of horizontally diverse and vertically diverse individuals across the organization. And we are empowering them to do some culture audits. So we have about 40 people across the organization. We train them on focus groups. They're going to go out. They are not the senior leaders, not, not, we're not, the, HR. not the HR team. Yeah. The HR team is supporting that. We do like to support, right, HR? Yes. But they're doing it, and they're actually going to go out, interview staff to understand and how they would describe our current culture, and where do they think the opportunities are to move from how would we describe our current state to the future state. And then we have a culture work stream that is made up of department heads where they're actually going to sit and listen to the culture coalition, describe our culture, make recommendations, should our values change based on where we're trying to go as an organization? Should our artifacts or competencies change as a result to create some space for us to take a little bit more risks? They're actually going to tell the organization what we need to do. And so I think that's one powerful example of how the organization is trying to you know, leverage the intellectual capital of the amazing people there, but also use it to inform the organization on where we need to go. We just heard from Dr. Sangwan about recognition, how lack of it causes burnout. I know it's a major focus of yours. Can you share what your philosophy is around recognition? You know, recognition is all about being seen and valued for your contributions. All organizations are powered by people. No task is too small to be recognized. We should be pausing and thanking people, right, for the things that they do. And so at Southern New Hampshire University, we actually did an inventory of our recognition program to see where we were because we were getting feedback from our employees that we had a little opportunity there. Um, and we realized we had over 200 different ways that we were recognizing, but not a unified way to recognize in a way that was transparent and that was consistent. And that really drove the behaviors that we wanted. So this year, we just launched our first university-wide recognition platform that focuses on day-to-day -day recognition. No matter where you are in the organization, no matter what the task or the behavior is, you can pause and recognize your coworkers in the social platform. You can send this virtual recognition and it actually creates this social wall. So it's actually built on this like social media platform that allows the whole organization to see what you're being recognized for. And other people can chime in and say, oh my goodness, congratulations on that presentation. Sounds awesome. Within 24 hours of launching our recognition program, we had over a thousand pieces of recognition that went out across the organization. And in less than two months, 41% of the organization has received a form of recognition. Now that we're no longer co-located and this is the future, we have to think differently about providing visibility to the impacts that people are making across the organization. The university president you know, went in, I sent him a recognition, he went in, said thank you, and then he's commenting on others. So it's really great when you think about the level of access and transparency about the contributions. Now it can be about work, but we also have recognition about life milestones in there. Congratulations on your new addition, whether it was a fur baby or right. Like we have so many different options in there and you can also recognize on our core values as well. The response has been tremendous. We have the option of making it a private recognition or public. People are just grateful that in this space where you hit the zoom button and you're by yourself, that 
the work that you're doing can still be seen and felt by so many others. So we're excited and about that. And that public one gives awareness to achievement that other people might not even be aware of, which is, a, is pretty amazing. Absolutely. SNHU was already exploring remote work, Acura and remote learning. What are some of the other things that have been really successful? A year prior to COVID, we were doing a pulse survey monthly, which was incredible because that year leading up to COVID, we actually knew people wanted to be remote. I mean, it was trending before it became a mandate. The biggest best practice is that the listening gives us so much insight. But one of the big learnings was relationship building was different in this environment than ever before. A sense of community was so important. Now, when you look at the research and we talk about community, there's two dimensions of community, right? There are community structures. We belong to neighborhoods and some people belong to gyms. I don't. <laughs> but it's one thing to be in a community and another to be in community. And we had to think about how do we create being in community? How do you help people develop relationships that are meaningful, not transactional? Log in a Zoom. Hello, how's it going? Go over the agenda. Log out. Log back in. How are you doing? Right. Like, how do we make sure that that's happening? Because here's the thing. We actually did onboard quite a few people during this time. And while many people had the advantage of being in the office and kind of continuing those relationships in a different way, virtually, I was able to continue listening. And we noticed that, oh, there's some comments of employees saying, new employees saying, I wish I had time to meet new people. And so we learned that creating community structures was important. So one, creating things like ERGs or communities of practice. But two, we needed to lean in to once you're in that community structure, how do we think about the environment so that the interactions feel meaningful, that we're developing beyond this professional like agenda, but you get to see me as a person and I feel like I matter here. And that question we ask on surveys, I have a friend at work, a lot of people don't like that question, <laughs> but it is a key indicator of retention. And if you feel like you have a relationship at work, then you're more likely to stay, more likely to be productive. And so that was one thing we leaned in quite a bit to this past year were our community structures. Yeah, in fact, uh, my cousin, Lisa Jennings, your colleague at SNOOP, um, told me about a recent board meeting where you were presenting on something you just touched on, communities of practice, yeah. and you got quite the reaction from the board of directors. Maybe you could share their reaction and then go into a little bit more detail about what communities of practice look like. Communities of practice are volunteer communities where people come together to learn about a domain. Well, when George Floyd was murdered, the university wanted to lean into diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives in a completely different way and invested $5 million in our social justice fund to really put our hands in eradicating racism for our learners. Because employees said, you know, all of this is happening. I want to make a difference, I, but, but I'm a little afraid to say the wrong thing. So what we said was, let's put these communities together. And, and the whole purpose of the community, we had four goals. One was just create belonging come together, earmark time and space, twice a month, 90 minutes, we're all showing up. The second thing was to really create a focus on learning, learning about yourself, learning about your peers, and learning about SNHU from a learner perspective in the workplace. And the last goal we had was what we learned from here, could it inform the $5 million we could tell the university how to spend this $5 million on how to improve and address DEI in the workplace and for our learners. 
So those were the four goals that this group had. And I had facilitators that supported this work, but it wasn't a cognitive exercise on diversity, equity, inclusion. We didn't really hash the the definitions of it. Our goal was to actually live it. What does it feel like to sit across from someone and actually not agree with their opinion in this room, in this space? How are you going to find the words to say that? Also, how are you gonna find the space to listen? Are you being triggered right now? What is it? Um, People ask questions. Is it okay to call you African-American or black? Nothing was off limits. You had permission to just ask questions, to be yourself. When we did the the survey at the end of this year-long project, 78% of them, and I asked on a scale of to a great extent to not at all, right? How much did this experience help you learn more about yourself? 78% or more said, learn so much more about myself, because this is about your approach to difference and your approach to different personalities and perspectives. So many things that happened in the news in this past year, and it showed up in those conversations. And so we had to not talk about it. We had to live it and say, oh, goodness, what is it like to still be empathetic? What is it like to challenge a perspective gently, but also be firm in your own perspective? And so we did that. And I will tell you, this was all done 100% remotely. No one had ever met anyone. Been together over a year. The survey results from the group said, this is the strongest connection I've had. People have been here 20 years. Some people have been here just a year. This community is the strongest community that I have. I feel seen, I feel heard because people were able to just show up as their authentic selves. We even asked the question, when are you your most authentic self? And when are you not? Why or why not? We tackled individual perspectives. And so the outcomes from that pilot actually saw a 21 point increase in employees' perceptions of building peer relationships. They actually felt more connected, like they had more friends at the university after doing this for nine to 12 months. We also saw for their engagement scores, their perception of freedom of opinions was higher because they were able to share their perspectives, right? And when I shared this information with the board, they were leaning in. They are representing so many different organizations and they were saying, yes, this is it. (laughs) It is about relationship. It's about building trust. So how do we scale these things in a way that doesn't only happen in this little microcosm, but actually percolates across the university? That's great. Congratulations. Do you have any advice for people from maybe smaller organizations, but maybe not as much in the way of resources that they could do that in a smaller, what you've done in a smaller way, or at least where to start? I'll give you some quick things that we did that was a part of our process. Every time we came together as a community, we started first with what we call check-ins. This was simply... Where do you find yourself in in your seat? Now, we all know we come in and we say, hi, how are you? Great. How are you? And we're running from meeting to meeting to meeting. And what we instituted in this community was we're actually just going to check in and everyone is going to go around and you're going to say authentically where you are, no matter what, like, how are you feeling? Now, I'll tell you, when we first started this, people were like, do you really want to know how I'm feeling? I don't know if you really want to know how I'm feeling. But what we learned was vulnerability begets vulnerability. When someone was able to say, yeah, I'm a little scattered today sorry guys. And everyone goes, don't apologize. So am I. It gave us all permission without judgment to just say, hey, you know what? Um, My kids are going back to school on Monday. I still don't know if they're remote or hybrid or I don't know what's going on. People were able to say, this is what I'm thinking about. I know I'm here to talk about this, but here's where I find myself today. And everybody checks out. So we do a checkout at the end. How are you feeling? And some people say, focused, energized, ready. And some won't change, scattered. And that's okay. We make no judgment. 
Practices like that, that you can implement in your one-on-ones, your team meetings. Hey, let's just check in. I know we all just ran from a, probably a few meetings. How are you? And don't feel like you gotta make it a dialogue, just how are you? And then you go, thank you, go to the next person and let everybody go around. And there's something refreshing about just saying, it's okay to just say, Ooh, I'm just trying to get my notes really quickly because I just ran from this meeting or have a dentist appointment and I'm gonna have to leave a little early. That practice of just, I see you beyond this agenda that we're about to get to has yielded so much in the connection. We're gonna open it up so you can ask Dr. Williams some questions yourself pretty soon, but I have a question from thinkers. How do you use data in your work? Oh, yes. You know, a big part of my role is literally listening. And so we oversee the continuous listening platforms, doing that monthly engagement survey, um, really taking those insights and not just looking at them in aggregate, but really disaggregating that by different populations. So we're looking at whether you are in place, what we call someone who's in a building or you're any place who's remote or if you're dual place doing a little bit of both. We really want to see what each of those experiences are like. So I'm combining performance data. We're looking at exit survey data. We're also looking at turnover, right? So that we can see as an organization, how are we doing? When you look at it on aggregate, sometimes things look great and you're, you can pat yourself on the back. And then sometimes when you disaggregate it, things are still great, but you look at those little opportunities. And that's what I love about data is because you can't debate it. It's a starting point for you to ask more questions. And so we use those engagement insights to actually create and make recommendations to our senior leadership team about potential programs. Recognition is one that came from that because we were looking at employee data and their perceptions there. Career planning, employees were saying, hey, I think there's an opportunity. I don't know that I see a career path here. We took those insights, partnered with talent development, and they have an amazing program that just rolled out over the last two years. So being able to use the employee feedback to really tell us where we need to spend our energy is, is really how we're, we're leveraging those insights. I will uh, share a tip. If you're asking for feedback, some of you are already shaking, you already know what I'm gonna say. <laughs> if you are asking for feedback, you wanna make sure you do something with it. Leaders who have 20 or more employees, they have their own engagement dashboard because we want them to feel like they don't have to wait for my team. They can do their own action plans within their own team. But if you are asking for data and not doing anything with it, employees start to feel as though you're not listening, that it doesn't matter. And you start to see participation rates start to decrease. And then you only hear from certain people and you don't hear the whole story. And then you start making action plans based on a, a vital few and not the whole. You've mentioned feedback. Your book is Feedback Mentality. One of the things that you do differently than some other people that write about feedback is you focus just as much on the receiver of feedback mm -hmm. as much as the giver. And do you talk about the inner voice yeah. the concept you write about? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of research out there on the inner voice and the imposter, but no one talks about what happens when that person gives you the feedback and then they leave and you're by yourself and you're trying to figure out this gift. <laughs> We start to doubt, right? So we start to go, oh my goodness, well, maybe I shouldn't be in this job or maybe I shouldn't have done this. And when someone gives me this area of opportunity, and I do believe that feedback is a gift, but it's about how you see it. That's where I spend a lot of my time in the book is really thinking about how do you process feedback? So my book is called Feedback, the key to unlocking and unleashing our potential. If we can conquer the narrative that we tell ourselves that other people give us these gifts, if we can control the narrative, 
our potential is limitless. We have so much talent. Sometimes our thoughts hold us back. I was curious, being an author and a TEDx speaker, how does that interplay with what you do at work? Writing a book on feedback sets you up to get a lot of feedback. (laughs) But it does make me more present and conscious and aware because I'm writing about it and reflecting on it in practice. And feedback isn't always negative either. I think that's also a myth. You said, I wrote that in the book, so I better do it. Wrote that, yes. <laughs> Ooh, that's on page six. I better do that right now. Well, um, I can tell, Shani, that you're really connected with this group here, and they want to talk to you. In fact, we always have, because we produced that tennis report by Keystone in cooperation with Nira, and we always have the Nira question of the podcast. Vandy Densmore from Nira is going to ask you a question. What I took away is that your values come through the community, inclusion and belonging, honesty, transparency, things of that nature. How do you package this in your recruiting and onboarding mm-hmm. activities? And the reason I ask that is because I plan on stealing anything. <laughs> <laughs> I have a cool word I learned for, for stealing. They call it case. Copy and steal everything. So you can say, I'm casing this meeting right now. So as we think about the onboarding experience, we just launched, for example, our very first employee resource group. How do we get that on the market, on our website, so that people, when they're thinking about joining SNHU, they can see that there is a community that exists for me here. We also don't want to look performative. You don't want to put an aspirational thing on your website and then people walk in and they're like, huh? Our talent acquisition consultants, that's another group that we want to get with and say, hey, we have one ERG, but we actually have 29 employee communities. and Most people don't even know they exist because they're organic. And when they're talking to prospective candidates and they're saying, so tell me a little bit about your culture. What communities can I join? They have a plethora of information about what the communities are, how often they operate, what the goals are of those as well, which is really critical. I actually partner very closely with the chief diversity officer, and she and her team do an incredible job of making sure that a lot of these behaviors and values are clearly articulated in our job descriptions, right? We want to see it in every part of the recruitment process. And we're working with the marketing team as well to think about what does that look like even in the whole application process when they get to our website? How do we infuse those values into all parts of the candidate experience? Communities are also very important to our students. And so one of the things that our campus just piloted was an app for students to be able to find their own community by typing in their information and saying, oh, here are the communities that emerge. Our group is going to pilot that. I'm so excited to see if employees come in, they can type in their interests and hobbies, and hopefully a community will emerge and they will be able to sign up to join those groups. So more to come, but great question. One more question right away. Because I struggled with recognition quite a bit in my organization. He mentioned the ball and he had a thousand posts within a short time frame. I'm curious if you did any analysis on those posts to find out was it peer-to-peer, was it upward towards management, was it a manager, you know, subordinate um, appreciation? Did you do any analysis? And if so, was it what you expected? Yeah, great question. So, you know, in the analysis we found, it's actually a lot of cross-functional peers. Thank you for participating in this project with me and thank you for helping my student or whatever. But I think I expected more manager recognition, like one manager is going to sit there and do their whole team today. 
And I was like, no, that wasn't it. Actually, we it's just been organic and people are finding meaningful things that they want to, to recognize for. Um, but to your point, there is a, a data point that I am watching. I can see who's sending the recognition. So as I mentioned, there's over 41% of the individuals who've been recognized, but it is coming from a small population. So I can see who's doing the recognition and who's not. And so we have a team of employees actually who are charged with helping us think about adoption. And they're gonna be coming up with creative ideas through what we call the engagement squad. How do we continue to make this not something that launches and fizzes, but making sure that we build that culture of appreciation. Shanita, thank you so much for being an incredible guest on that live recorded edition of the House Report of Strategic HR. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners. Be sure to subscribe to listen to all of our conversations with leaders in HR. Go to keystonepartners.com and click on the podcast button.